usually like to just jump into it at the beginning of a sermon, but I thought maybe a word of explanation for if, you, if you're here for the first time and you're thinking, man, that guy's got a mellow voice. I could hear that all day. Yeah, that's just a one-week deal. I, I caught that, uh, that summer cold, so yay. We didn't plan it right. John should have been preaching today. I could have preached last week when I still had a voice, so oh well. It is nice to finally have my voice change after all these years. <clears throat> There's an interesting set of images described in Revelation 19. There are these two women. Um, got all the men's attention now. Uh, there are these two women. Um, one is called the great prostitute. The great prostitute. And uh, that is also identified as Babylon. Babylon represents the world. At least that's how I would take that passage. It represents the world. It represents sinful man in opposition to God, so the powers of, of the age and all that kind of thing. And Babylon is destroyed. Babylon is destroyed with eternal fire. Her fire goes up forever and ever, and that's pretty graphic. But then in contrast to the great prostitute, John shows us this, or it's shown to, shown to John, and John conveys it, but, but he sees a woman um, that is at the marriage of the Lamb. And she is pictured adorned with clothing of fine linen, bright and pure. She is obviously then the bride of the Lamb. And that's an image we see in other places in the New Testament. Paul uses that same image when he's talking about the church. Look what it says in Ephesians 5. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It is amazing how often the church is compared to a beautiful bride prepared for her husband. And a lot of times, the passages, when we're reading them, they have us looking forward to the time when Christ returns, and then you'll have that, that wedding feast of, you know, of the Lamb, and, and all of that is looking forward. But here today... We're actually kind of looking backward. Luke gives us this snapshot of a beautiful church. At least that's, this, this is kind of the, how I dubbed it today. But if you, if you look at these verses, he's talking about the, the very first church, the church at Jerusalem. And he's, he's giving us, it's, it's almost like a, a fine wedding photographer uh, can, can make so much, you know, um, out of, out of uh, not, I mean, every bride and groom are beautiful in their own right, but, but if, if the guy really knows what, or gal, knows what they're doing, um, they can really make that just come alive and look, and look particularly radiant and beautiful. That's how I think we should think about the church. At least that's what I think Luke wants us to do here. And we need to love a beautiful church. When you hold the church up, when you see the church as God sees the church, as Christ sees it, it should be lovely to us. And we ought to love that church. By love, I don't mean have a, a, a gushy emotion about it, although go ahead if you've got gushy emotions, let them flow. I'm thinking love more like, um, first of all, appreciating the worth of something. In marriage, if you love your spouse, you should appreciate them. That's why it's so deadly when in a marriage people start having contempt for each other because contempt is almost the opposite of love by that definition. 
you love someone, you treasure them, you, you hold them as valuable. So it's that opinion, that, that holding them as, as being of supreme value, but also loving in the sense of being engaged. Christ loved the church and gave his life for the church. We should love the church. We should give our lives for the sake of the church in that sense. So love the church, love the beautiful church, and first of all, love the unity of a beautiful church. You gotta love the unity of a beautiful church. It says in verse 32a, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now what do you see right away there of the church? They're, they're unified. They're unified as those who believe, as those who believe the true church is a church. And this was something that historically, and I won't go into all the ancient history of this, but through the centuries there have been times when you had state churches, and when you get a state church that is supported by the government, all of a sudden, now the church is made up of whoever the state says is part of the church. And so you had the Puritans and others come along saying, no, the church is made up of those who believe. And that doesn't mean that if you're not a believer and you're here today that we want to kick you out. We don't want you to leave. We're, we're here to preach the gospel to you. If you're here today, if you wandered in or you wandered in online and you're not a believer, uh, we're not kicking you out. But what we're saying here is that when we talk about the church, we're not just talking about people that show up on a Sunday morning. We're not talking about the building. Most certainly we're not talking about that. But we're talking about that unity of those who know Christ as their Savior. You look at how he expresses this. He says, of one heart and one soul. What does that say to you? Of one heart and one soul. Well, I mean, among other things, it would mean that they had the same devotion and desire. The same devotion and desire for the things of God, for the kingdom of our Lord, of his gospel, of salvation being preached to the world. They had a vision, they had a work, they had a passion for the church and for the people of God and for the gospel. Think for a moment how incredible this actually really is in this circumstance. Who made up that first church now that you've been through the first four chapters of Acts? Who made it up? It consisted of Jewish people from all over the world. How far spread apart were these people that had come there to, at Pentecost? They were so spread apart that they spoke different languages. Yes, they were all Jewish, but some came from a very Hellenized, that is Greek kind of background, and some came more from around the area of, of Israel itself, and they had a more Hebraic view, if you want to say that. But there were all kinds of different cultures coming together in a melting pot there. And that makes it pretty incredible. Have you ever lived somewhere other than the United States and uh, associated with Christians overseas? Brenda, you have, right? You grew up traveling around. Maybe some of the rest of you have. Um, uh, not, not to brag or anything, but Debbie and I lived over, overseas for four years, and we hung out with Christians in Germany. And, you know, you think Germans and Americans, what could possibly, you know, be different between those two groups of people, a couple world wars, but other than that, I mean, we're practically the same, aren't we? No, no. You know, when we hung out with other Christians, there were d demonstrable differences in terms of the culture that we came from, different values, different priorities, different work ethics, different hygiene standards, and all, just a whole host of things that, that we saw differently. And yet, being believers in Christ still allowed us to experience unity across all, all of that um, that great diversity. 
Think about how hard it was just to keep unity here at Grace, and probably every other church for that matter, during the last year, during 2020. You remember that year, don't you? What possibly did we have to divide over? Oh, I don't know, an election, COVID-19, do you wear a mask, do you not wear a mask? Do we come back and start meeting together now? Do we wait a month? Yeah, it's an, it's an amazing, unity is something which is so precious. If we love the church, we need to honor that. We need to hold that up. And I'm not saying unity at all costs. There are things where we have to, at times, be divided, but, but unity should be there, our desire and our goal. We should, we should love unity and work for unity. I think that might be why a divisive person is, is warned with such great warning in the scripture. Look at this. This is Paul speaking to Titus. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But again, it's the unity of the body. This is something that we are to love. Admittedly, sometimes churches divide, and we've, we've seen that. We know that can happen. Sometimes it's for actually good reasons. Sometimes you have a group of people that are no longer adhering to Scripture. They're wanting to turn away to other things, and there has to be division. We've all known of churches that split because of the denomination. How many have known this in their life? A denomination went way off you know, into an unbiblical area, and then the local church had to say, you know, can't go along with that. It, it, it happens, doesn't it? But how much worse is it if division simply happens because we're sinful? And we all are. But if we split, if we divide because people are proud or pe- because people are unforgiving, how truly awful is that? We are meant to be unified in love. Have you loved the unity of a beautiful church? I hope you feel that at Grace. I hope as you, as, as you become involved at Grace, you will sense that at least we are striving toward that. It is, it is so critical. But you have to ask yourself, though, dear believer, it's where the rubber meets the road, um, what am I doing? What am I doing to promote the unity of a beautiful church? What part do I contribute? Am I displaying the fruits of the Spirit? Am I gentle? Am I loving? Am I humble? Am I forgiving my brothers and sisters in Christ? I think Luke holds this up for us to look at and say, that's where we want to be. Amen? How many want to see Grace be that kind of church? Two of you. Three. Okay, more. A few more. Good. All right. It was slow, but it got there. Um, okay. <clears throat> Secondly, love the generous equity of a beautiful church. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And if this looks familiar, it does look a lot like something that, that Luke said in chapter 2. We had, they had that same kind of thing going. And you'll forgive me then for repeating, but this was not an early form of communism. Luke does not say no one owned anything. He does not say no one, that's a double negative, but you understand, no one owned anything. That's not the idea. Um, I've, there are 
groups in the world that call themselves Christian and do practice a kind of communism where no, it's a common purse, nobody has anything that really they call their own. But, but, but that's what Luke actually, he says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Let me read that again. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, do you hear the difference of that? So not that I don't own anything. It's that I don't come to regard those things as exclusively mine. It is a, it, it is a, uh, a worldview or, or a, uh, an ethos in the church where people share and they share alike. What, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine, that, that sort of thing. I believe that should, that should be a common experience in the church, don't you? I believe that if a church is coming more and more toward the ideal that, of that spiritual maturity that we are, that we are called to grow up into, that, that we will see this all the more. Because we are sharing in a common battle, are we not? Don't we face a common enemy? Don't we battle against the same demons, as it were? Can you imagine being in a foxhole with some other guys and you're, you know, you're shooting at the enemy, the enemy's shooting at you, and then all of a sudden you're out of ammo and you look at the guy to your left and you go, hey man, I'm out of ammo. And he says, yeah, go get some. Do you have any? Yeah, I brought a whole stockpile, but you're not getting any of it. You look at the guy at the right and he's, it's the same story, so you have to crawl out of the foxhole and go run and look for ammo. Can you imagine a, a situation like that? It's impossible to imagine that if you're engaged in warfare together that, that, that you would become possessive of, of those things. They shared, they shared alike. And that, I think, is something we should see. And I think we see that at Grace. I have to make that application. I have to look at our church and say, well, how are we doing with that? Lately, there's been this whole trend, it seems like, of moving away. Don't know what that's about. But consequently, we keep having these, hey, everybody, let's show up and help so-and-so move which is how I refer to them as so-and-so. Um, but we, you know, people bring their pickup trucks, they, they bring hand trucks, they bring whatever, some rope to tie it with. Some people bring a strong back. Some people bring knowledge of, of, of what is necessary to get a huge sofa through a small doorway. And it's, it's a, in that, that's been cool. That part's been good. It's been a bittersweet experience. But you see that, that coming together and that sharing as it ought to be. Here's the thing, though. With the early church, this went deeper than that. Dare I say, it went a whole lot deeper. Look at verses 34 and 35. Now, this should make you feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel uncomfortable. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. That description should kind of blow us away. Now again, very interesting, very unique context. How did the church come together at Jerusalem? They all came together at Pentecost when the people from all over the world had traveled there as pilgrims for the feast, probably for the Passover and then for, then for Pentecost, and they stayed. So some of them traveled light. I mean, how would you have traveled if you were a pilgrim, you know, going, not jumping on a, on a flight, but who knows how many different conveyances you would have to take to get from point A to point B. You know, 
they didn't have probably much more than, than the clothes on their back and maybe a little, little bit of spare change, and that was it. And now they're there at this incredible, beautiful church, and they don't want to leave. They, they sense how, how huge this is, so they stay, but they don't have the resources. It's in that context that this happens. They actually went so far. Let's see if my voice holds up through the rest of this. They actually went so far as to sell houses and land in order to meet the growing need of, of the community, and they distributed it. If you ask me, what's the biggest miracle in the first four chapters of the book of Acts? Is it Pentecost? Is it the people speaking in other tongues? Is it the healing of the lame man? I mean, those are up there. <laughs> but I think this is the biggest miracle, isn't it? People are selling houses. Anybody here anxious to sell your house and give the money to the church? I saw some people shaking their head that you're anxious to sell your house. But I mean, it's that second part. That's where the kicker comes in, isn't it? They're selling houses and land for this. They weren't forced to do it. There was not a, a voice from on high saying, you know, if you want to be a good Christian, this is what you have to do. The, the lesser Christians can line up over on this side of the room. I think there'd be a lot of people lining up on that side of the room if that were the case. But, but they, it, it flowed out of love and necessity. Could this be abused? Yeah. Yeah, like, like if I was buying my second Lear jet, you know, after my first one started to wear out just a little bit, and, uh, and I wanted you guys to sell houses and land so I could get my second Learjet, yeah, that could be abuse. Just gonna, I'm just going to say, probably. That's probably abuse. But there's other ways it could be, be abused as well. We know Ananias and Sapphira abused it. Or you could look at the Thessalonians in, Thessal in first, I think it's first Thessalonians. It, it talks about, or a second, that where they, uh, those that don't, do not work shall not eat. And Paul was saying that because people were quitting their jobs, living off the church and becoming busybodies. And so Paul's like, yeah, we're going to nip that in the butt. It can be abused, of course. But the excesses and abuse on the one end of the spectrum should not cause us to miss the significance of this. When you look at this, do you see something beautiful or scary? You should see something scary, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, because that is a work of God in our hearts. And that, I think that's something for us to aspire to, to love one another with that deep of love and to have that much of a commitment to care for one another. Not under, not under coercion, not as a guilt trip, but out of love we should give generously. Thirdly, love the proclamation of the resurrected Christ in a beautiful church. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. It's very similar to what was going on in chapter 2, where the apostles were, were giving their testimony. Apparently, they didn't take the hint that they had the week. You remember last time we were there, they were being warned. They were to not to speak about the resurrection in the name of Jesus. They were, that was off limits. They were not to do that. And they told the, the, the leaders, well, you make up your mind which is better, whether we obey you or whether we obey God. What's well, clear which way they went on this. They were obeying God. Now, in the early days of the church at Jerusalem, the preaching was mainly the function of the apostles. In fact, almost entirely so. Throughout the New Testament, as the church 
continues, we see that in local churches there were elders, there were pastors, there were shepherds who preached the word, that same word of the resurrected Christ. Their witness here is of the resurrection. And that's not just the resurrection. I think the resurrection there includes everything, right? The whole testimony of the gospel. Christ's death, burial, and most importantly, in one sense, his resurrection, because they witnessed that. They saw the resurrected Christ. I firmly believe that the preaching of the resurrection of the gospel is the key that really beautifies the church. Unity beautifies the church. That generosity beautifies. But I think central and foremost has to be the preaching of the resurrected Jesus. Amen? If you don't have that, what do you really have? I don't think um, Luke is talking here about two totally unrelated things. Look at what he says there again. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I don't think, that's, I don't think he's saying that two things happened here, two separate things. The apostles preached, preached the resurrection. Oh, yeah, and then grace. People had a lot of grace upon them. What is he saying? I think he's saying because they were preaching the gospel, because they were preaching the resurrection, that it was through that, because of that, that unavoidably grace was upon them through the message of the gospel. Have you ever been in a church that lost the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The emphasis shifts. All at once, you you don't hear about Christ, about his cross, about his resurrection. Instead, what do you start to get? You start to get moralism, like do this. Next week, do that. Third week, do this and that. And it's just do, 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 do. And, 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 and it, it, it's overwhelming, isn't it? All the moral little lessons that we have to apply. But, but there's no cross. There's no, there's no grace in that. The grace to love and serve one another doesn't flow out of ourselves. So if the emphasis is on us, like we're saying, you know, you need to make, make yourself into a better person. Or, uh, or if we make it all highly, you know, all, this high application sort of sermon preaching that some people want, where we basically are scratching where it tickles a little bit. None of that gets us to that place where grace starts truly abounding in our midst. Grace comes when, when the gospel of Christ is being preached. Though we don't have local apostles, we do still preach the same gospel, and that is Jesus is alive. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose the third day. He ascended. He sits at the right hand of God. He reigns from there. He's coming again. That's where the power is, and that's where grace is. You know, if if you just preach about people, about us, There's only two things that can possibly happen from that. One is, if you're an honest person, you're going to get discouraged. Because if if, if all we're preaching is, this is how you can be a better person, eventually you're going to tire of yourself. How many have ever gotten just tired of you? Is it just me? You've never been tired of yourself? Because you keep trying, you don't seem to get much better. Then you go to church, maybe, and they're just telling you how to... Constantly, you need to do this and you need to do that. You either get discouraged, or on the opposite end, if you're not a very honest person, you end up thinking, man, I'm pretty special. 
look at me. You know, I gave up chewing tobacco <laughs> or whatever. I didn't really give up chewing tobacco. I don't chew tobacco either. It's just, it just wasn't something I had to give up. But no, I digress. What grace, grace is, is where the gospel is preached. That is where people have the joy and the life and the grace for one another and from the Lord. Finally, I am going to get through this. Love the leadership development of a beautiful church. Love the leadership development of a beautiful church. Let me speak autobiographically here just a little bit on behalf of our congregation. Um, As painful as it is to lose people from Great Bend to lesser localities. Well, think about it for a minute. minute. They don't call it Good Bend, do they? This is Great Bend. Some people want to go to places like Manhattan. Man as not God, you know? (laughs) Things like that. (laughs) Yeah, we could go on. I have a whole series of puns for places like Topeka and such. But, um, yeah. As much as we really, truly do hate having our people leave us, there is also a very pregnant sense that we have that in in so many cases God is taking people who have been you know raised up grown um, equipped in this church and then being sent on to you know I guess bigger and better places or whatever at least to a different a different ministry I think about Emily who's going to be speaking um, next week and uh, she's a young person that came up in this church and part of us would just I'm sure would love to she's just gotten married and come here and just Start a family. Instead, she's going to go someplace overseas and be a missionary. And that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. We look at that and we, and, and we see this is what a, a church does. This is what a beautiful church does. It, it doesn't just stay stagnant. It raises up the next generation. It equips leaders. Look at what it says in verse 36 through 37. And this is an object lesson. So this is, this, is, uh, this is where I'm getting this, this from. It's, it's sort of this object lesson here of, of a guy called Joseph. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this Joseph character, he's just an ordinary Joe. There were a lot of ordinary Joes back then called Joseph among the, the people of God. It was a common, common enough name. But this guy, this guy was so special that the apostles had a nickname for him. Not an uncommon thing. Jesus had nicknames, you know, nicknamed Peter and other people. And you think about James and John. They were called the sons of thunder. This guy's called the son of encouragement. That was a unique Hebrew way of thinking about these kinds. Of, like, like we, as Americans, would probably, if somebody was really an encourager, We'd say, oh, here comes Captain Encouragement. Um, but they would say son of encouragement, as if encouragement itself, you know, got married and then had a child, and, and the child was this guy, Barnabas, who was just apparently a person just oozing in the gift of encouragement. We'll, we'll actually see this as we progress through the book of Acts. We will learn quite a bit along the way. We know he's from the tribe of Levi, so that's a priestly family. He wasn't local. He was from Cyprus, so could have been one of those that came uh, at Pentecost. 
But what we, but what we definitely see is that he has sort of future leader stamped on his forehead. We're going to see that uh, as, as time goes on. By the way, Luke is an excellent storyteller. This is just a little aside, but I want you to kind of notice it. Have you ever been reading a book or watching a movie, and they introduce a character in just a little snippet, and then they leave him, and then later they come, you come back to that person? It's like, a, it's like a literary device of some sort. Oh, wait, was that guy significant? And then later on, oh, I remember that guy. Well, Barnabas is that guy. He's going to come alongside of Saul, who becomes known as Paul. He's going to go on the first missionary journey. But more importantly to the discussion, he's going to go to the church at Antioch and become a leader there. And then from that church, they're going to send out missionaries. They're going to be really the first missionary uh, church of the New Testament. And that's what a beautiful church looks like. It recognizes, it teaches, it guides new leaders, it deploys them into ministry. And as hard as it is for us to see young people go away and then not come back and settle in here, you know, at, in Great Bend, um, it, it is a beautiful thing nonetheless to be part of that, to know that God has worked in that way. Do you love a beautiful church building? How many love a beautiful church building? How many love our beautiful church building now? Don't you feel that it looks a little nicer? I think we were ready for that. We didn't go crazy. I mean, it's still a former skating rink, but I think it was nice to have the, the refreshing that we did here. So then you know where this is going, right? Do you love a beautiful church as described in the New Testament? Does that, is that something that you love? And again, what am I talking about when I say love? Love is not a gushy feeling necessarily. It's all great if the feelings follow and connect and are intertwined. But do you see its value? Do you see its worth? Do you treasure a really good church, a really beautiful church? Does, does that, yeah? And do you love in the sense of give yourself to that? Do you give all your zeal and all your passion to your local church? Or is it one of those things, well, you know, I can take it or I can leave it. God would have us love his church. Look at those things like unity. Am I working for the unity of the body? Generosity. That's a dangerous prayer. Lord, make me more generous like the first, <laughs> first church. The proclamation of the gospel. How beautiful is that? that the good news is preached in this place? Or what about raising up godly leaders? Do you love a beautiful church? I hope you do. If you're here and you're not part of that unity we spoke about earlier, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not like we're trying to drive you away, but we are calling you, as it were, to join us. As of right now, you're not part of us in that sense because you are not walking with Christ. You don't know him as your Savior and Lord. But we proclaim to you the same apostolic message that was proclaimed here, that was being discussed here, which is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. And it is by repentance and believing in him that you can have life. And we call you to that. We call you to a beautiful church. I mean, okay, we're aspiring to be a beautiful church here in 
beautiful Great Bend, and uh, we, would, we would welcome you to be part of our, of our fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for holding before us a very clear picture, a very clear image of what a beautiful church can be. And Lord, I think it encourages us on, on some level. In, in every one of these four things, Lord, I think we can see that you've been working in our midst in, in, a, in a very deep way. And we, we love that, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful that the gospel is proclaimed. We're thankful that we have a unity. We're thankful that, that we have seen people come up in this congregation and then go and become leaders elsewhere or even around the world. We're thankful for that. Lord, we thank, we're thankful for the unity that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that it was heard today. I pray that it was proclaimed in a way that it would reach receptive hearts. Lord, that you would make those hearts receptive and that we would be able to see the church grow in that way. We desire that, Lord. We pray for that. I pray that each person here would be committed to that. And I ask it in your name. Amen.